welcome, welcome to another episode of the Act Protect Engage Ape Academy podcast. I'm your host with the most, Mr. Chase Age. This is the first podcast for Black History Month. So what you're listening right now is a song by Bayard Rustin. It's called You Don't Have to Ride Jim Crow, and it kind of fits perfectly. Couldn't fit any more perfectly with the subject we're discussing today. All right, all right. I'm happy to be back. This is our first podcast in a while for many factors. But what we're going to do is we're going to put out fewer podcasts, but they're going to be well done, well-researched as always, okay? Strategically placed to make sure we give you guys the best quality research and the best quality production we can, okay? Thank you so much for tuning in. God bless you. All right, so today's episode is called You Don't Have to Ride Jim Crow, The Story of Irene Morgan, Part 1. Before Rosa Parks, there's a little-known woman who became a pioneer for challenging individual states' Jim Crow laws when it comes to interstate commerce. So movement, interstate commerce, and travel, actually, I'm sorry, movement between the states. So you start off in Virginia, and you're driving up to Maryland, or you're starting off in Georgia, and you're driving to Mississippi. There were an early movement to challenge segregation in the 40s that many people don't know about. In school, we usually hammer the civil rights movement that occurred in the 50s and 60s, right, and a little bit into the 70s. But in reality, that was actually the climax of the civil rights movement. A lot of the really nitty-gritty foundational work occurred in the mid to late 40s, and this is what we're going to talk about today, all right? So, who was Mrs. Irene Morgan? Oh, real quick, sources. Every podcast we put out is well-researched. Our search, our source today is from Mr. Raymond Arsenault, and his monograph, his scholarly book, is called Freedom Riders, 1961 and the Struggle for Racial Justice, okay? Great book, highly recommended. So, who was Mrs. Irene Morgan? Well, we're about to explain. She boarded her Greyhound bus in Hayes Store, Virginia, on the sweltering day of July 16, 1944. At the time, Irene Morgan was only a 27-year-old mother of two and a defense worker. Her husband worked on the docks of Baltimore's bustling inner harbor. A lot of soldiers who fought in World War II, a lot of soldiers went overseas and they were unavailable to work industrial jobs. So the government had to start looking for alternate sources of labor. First, they looked for African-American men. And of course, many of them were also fighting overseas. So then they switched the women to white women. Once those numbers began to uh, be inadequate, the government began looking for and hiring African-American women to fill traditionally male jobs. So this was Mrs. Irene Morgan's situation. According to historian Raymond Arsenault, whose book I used as a source for this podcast, Mrs. Morgan suffered a miscarriage earlier that summer. So as she boarded the bus after an extended stay with her mother in the rural countryside near Hay Store in Gloucester County, Virginia, she was not in good health. Mrs. Morgan actually needed to get back to Baltimore for a doctor's appointment. 
the hope being that the doctor could issue her a clean bill of health so her job at the Martin Bomber plant, where she helped build B-26 Marauders, could resume. So these are the big bombers that were infamous during World War II and really helped turn the tide against the Germans. She was a industrial worker in one of the plants that made these horrifying and really effective weapons. When describing life in Royal Virginia at the time, Archonaut writes that the brief visit while relaxing, quote, also confirmed the stark realities of a rural folk culture. Shouldering the burdens of three centuries of plantation life, the war had brought surprisingly few changes to the area, most of which remained mired in suffocating poverty and a rigid caste system. So, knowing all this, Mrs. Morgan was well aware of the life she left behind in Virginia. And she knew that Baltimore had his own racial and class conflicts, yet she still felt lucky to live in a community, being Baltimore, where people of color could at least own homes, businesses, attend school, middle school, high school, and work their way into the middle class. So in many ways, Mrs. Morgan was the exemplification of what was termed at the time the new Negro. And this was a concept that was really promoted by black leaders, and particularly the NAACP, and they'd been doing this all through the 1930s. The new Negro was a dignified African-American who worked hard, long hours, saved money, was patriotic, and was focused on upward social mobility. So essentially, the new Negro movement was a part of a growing movement that stressed the human dignity of African-Americans and began the long fight for racial equality. On the morning of July 16th, the Greyhound bus was packed. It was a hot, sweltering day in the South. The bus was packed, especially in the colored section, which forced many black passengers to stand in the aisles. Later in the trip, as the bus arrived in Saluda, a county seat, merely 26 miles from Hayes Store, Virginia, Mrs. Morgan was finally able to find a seat three rows from the back. The problem was, despite being near the back of the bus, her seat was situated, was situated excuse me, in front of a white couple, which was obviously a glaring violation of Southern racial customs and protocol. Also, Mrs. Morgan was unintentionally violating a 1930 Virginia statute prohibiting racially mix, racial mixing on public seating when it comes to buses and trains. So, we have to remember, in the South, as we all know, everything was highly segregated. Everything was separated. Just because there was a designated color section on a bus did not mean that black folks were entitled for a seat, to have a seat. Depending on the number of white passengers, African-Americans could still be forced to stand even if there were seats in the colored section. Because first things first, the white passengers had to get on and find a seat. So the problem wasn't that Mrs. Hayes was, uh, Miss, I'm sorry, Mrs. Morgan, Mrs. Hayes, I'm not sure where I got that. Mrs. Morgan was sitting down. It was the fact that she was sitting down in front of a white couple, which obviously is bad optics 
in the South at the time. But since she was not actually sitting next to a white person, Morgan did not think the driver would, would ask her to move. Unfortunately, as more white passengers began to enter the bus, the driver demanded she give up her seat. While her anger and frustration were natural, Mrs. Morgan's attempt to negotiate with the driver explained that she was, quote, unwilling to stand for any length of time was a dangerous act for anyone, especially a single mother with small children. And it definitely drew the attention of local law enforcement. This was not a common thing. Most authorities were used to African-Americans just kind of knowing their place, going along with life, not wanting any trouble because it could create a very dangerous and at times deadly situation for them. So most people just kind of put their head down and kept moving. From the book, quote, Irene Morgan's impulsive act like Rosa Parks' more celebrated refusal to give up her seat on a Montgomery bus 11 years later placed her in a difficult and dangerous position. To the driver and the sheriff of Middlesex County, the fact that she was a woman with health concerns did not matter one bit. She had challenged a white man's authority, and even worse, even worse, she threatened the sanctity of segregation. At this time, the South's social structure relied on maintaining a delicate balance. It had to be balanced. A delicate balance between unspoken racial etiquette mutual understanding slash inherence to these social rituals and backed by a full legal precedent. So everything that was kind of an unspoken rule was backed by some sort of law on the books. With no regard to her gender or health concerns, the sheriff and the driver callously drug Morgan off the bus, both men claiming to have used force only when Morgan tore up the arrest warrant and threw it out the window which sounds like something my wife would do <laughs> in that type of situation. There's some people who are fighters and who aren't going to take any crap, and Mrs. Morgan was definitely one of them. According to sworn testimony, Mrs. Morgan kicked the deputy three times in the leg. Mrs. Morgan, however, insisted that the real story was much different. Quote, he touched me. That's when I kicked him in a very bad place. He hobbled off, and another one came on. He was trying to put his hands on me to get me off. I was going to bite him, but he was dirty, so I clawed him and clawed him instead. I ripped his shirt. We're both pulling at each other. He said he'd use his knife stick, and I said, well, we'll whoop each other. <laughs> I, I love the spirit. I, I just, you know, sometimes to change the world, you really have to risk a lot. You have to risk everything. And Mrs. Morgan, at that time, maybe... You know, she got caught at the perfect kind of moment where she was sick from her, her miscarriage. She was tired. She was fed up, and she was ready to go home. And everything just kind of coalesced into this perfect storm. Eventually, Mrs. Morgan was charged with resisting arrest and violating Virginia's Jim Crow transit law and spent seven long hours in the run-down, dirty county jail. After returning to Baltimore, however, Mrs. Morgan would not let the injustice go claiming that she was minding her own business. Quote, I'd paid my money. I was sitting where I was supposed to sit, and I wasn't going to take it. On October 18th, Morgan took her case before Middlesex County Circuit Judge J. Douglas Mitchell, 
arguing that Virginia's segregation laws did not apply to interstate passengers. Morgan pled guilty to a resisting arrest charge and agreed to pay the $100 fine. However, get this, she refused to pay the much reduced $10 fine and court costs for her conviction of the segregated Virginia law. So what she got convicted of was violation of seg violating a segregation law. She refused. She paid the $100 fine for resisting arrest. Arrest. She, she agreed. She had no problem paying that. But for the much smaller fine, a token, like, like nothing, like compared to $100, $10, on principle, she stood strong and refused to admit guilt. And I commend her for that. And that really kind of started the entire movement that challenged segregation on public transportation. Mrs. Morgan pledged to fight on an appeal to the Virginia Supreme Court. Her vow to fight on gained the attention of the NAACP lawyers in the capital of Richmond, Virginia, who were searching for a test case to challenge the constitutionality of the state's Jim Crow transit laws. Arsenault does an excellent job explaining the puzzling intricacies of interstate travel in the DMV region. So the DMV is the District, Maryland, and Virginia. I used to live there for years, and everything is kind of pancaked on top of each other and sandwiched in between each other. And it's just like being in St. Louis, Missouri on the border of Illinois. You can throw a rock across the Mississippi and hit Illinois. The DMV region is similar, so it's really confusing especially back then when you're crossing different states. Different states had different rules. Quote, segregated transit was a special concern in Virginia, which served as a gateway for southbound bus and railway passengers. Crossing into the Old Dominion from the District of Columbia, which had no Jim Crow restrictions, or from Maryland, which, unlike Virginia, limited its segregationist mandate to local and interstate passengers, could be a jarring and bewildering experience for travelers unfamiliar with the complexities of border state life, end quote. NAACP attorneys in Virginia and the national office did what they could to chip away at the legality of Jim Crow transit, but they lacked the national public exposure on the issue needed to enact sweeping change. The infamous court case, Plessy versus Ferguson, stood as a legal foundation for the, quote, separate but equal doctrine that sustained segregation since 1896. The case validated the controversial Louisiana segregated coach law. Accordingly, since this landmark decision, the court had been reluctant to revisit the issue or rule in opposition. In 1910, with former Ku Klux Klansman Edward White serving as Chief Justice, the Supreme Court ruled in Childs versus Chesapeake and Ohio Railway that state segregated laws could be applied to interstate passengers, which is obviously a bogus ruling. In 1914, in McCabe versus Topeka and Santa Fe Railroad, as you can start seeing a trend here, people are beginning to challenge Jim Crow on transit, especially between states. In this case, the court agreed that black travelers had the right to equal accommodation, citing the 14th Amendment and rejecting the railroads, railroad company's assertions that the lack of black travelers that requested Pullman sleeping cars 
justify their complete absence. So in this case, the railroad tried to argue that since there weren't as many black passengers requesting a sleeping car, that means that they didn't have to provide sleeping cars. Obviously, that's not true. Just because 50% less black folks don't want to sleep on a train doesn't mean they shouldn't have access to those accommodations. So that was their excuse to not provide black folks with equal accommodations, right? They weren't challenging the separate. They were ch At the time, they were challenging the equality calls. You got to have equal accommodations. If they're going to be separate, at least have them be available for both races, right? Yet, even with these small victories, Catherine Barnes, the leading historian of transit desegregation, writes that at the time and for decades after, quote, Southern blacks attempted only to equalize accommodations, not to undo segregation. This changed after 1930 with a new surge in liberal FDR-inspired court appointed, uh, appointments and prompted the NAACP to re revamp their legal strategy. In 1941, the NAACP secured their first major victory in a segregated transit case. In Mitchell versus Arkansas, the court affirmed Illinois Congressman Arthur Mitchell's claim to equal first-class service provided to white customers. So even a black congressman who represented his state in the federal government was not offered quality first-class service, the same as other white customers. With this victory, Thurgood Marshall, William Hasty, and other prominent NAACP legal theorists were convinced that individual states' attempts to apply state law to interstate travel was legally vulnerable. They saw a chink in the armor. They cited the Interstate Commerce Clause in Hall v. DeCure, a forgotten case from 1877 that ironically, get this, they used this in their favor. This case ironically invalidated a state law prohibiting racial segregation amongst interstate steamboat passengers. Moving cautiously to choose the right clients in the right cases, the NAACP Virginia Legal Committee, which was headed by three Howard University in D.C., trained attorneys, Spotswood Robinson, <laughs> I love the name Spotswood Robinson, Oliver Hill, and Martin A. Martin, selected Irene Morgan's case in the fall of 1944. On June 6, 1945, the Virginia NAACP's well-crafted and carefully drafted legal brief was rejected by the Supreme Court of Virginia, who upheld the constitutionality of the 1930 Jim Crow transit law. From the book, quote, reiterating the wisdom and legality of segregating all passengers regardless of their origin or destination. However, Judge Herbert Gregory did not deny, so he, the head judge on the Supreme Court in Virginia could not deny that Hall v. DeCure established a legal precedent for invoking the Commerce Clause as a barrier to state statutes that interfered with interstate commerce. So let me, let me repeat that. Let me explain that. Basically, the NAACP attorneys were brilliant. They used a law that actually hurt their cause to kind of show how ridiculous the Virginia Supreme Court's argument was, right? He, the head judge had to admit that, hey, look, there is a clause 
that state law shouldn't apply. But in this case, that's not what's happening. So he dismissed the NAACP's claim that the 1930 law involves such interference. However, once again, however, however, Gregory's words were music to the NAACP's collective ears. This decision proved the validity of Morgan versus Commonwealth of Virginia as a near-perfect test case to take to the Supreme Court. And that is the end of part one. <laughs> We're going on 21 minutes. I like to keep your attention. I don't want to dilly-dally and take too long. Sometimes I talk slow. Wah, wah, wah. Not this time. We're speeding it. We're speeding through. We're adding details in other uh, subsequent parts. So we have a part two coming out later this week. God bless you guys. Happy Black History Month. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Mrs. Irene Morgan is an unsung hero that deserves her shine and her her recognition. All right. A lot of times we learn about the towering, heroic titans of the civil rights movement. And there were many. And they deserve all the respect and admiration that we can muster. But there's a lot. There's a, a lot of smaller but just as significant people who really were essential to the civil rights movement. And this is one person. So we're going to go through those people this month. God bless you all. Stay safe. I hope you enjoy the podcast today. Stay positive. Put God first, your family second, and your country third. Ape out. God bless.